if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, as Jeff said at the top of the service, we are uh, in the Gospel of John uh, as we've been going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse in the Gospel of John. And today we are in John 11, uh, beginning with verse 1. As you're going there, uh, it reminds me, this story today actually reminds me about uh, uh, three women, uh, three elderly women who lived together, and uh, they were 92, 94, and 96 years old. And, you know, they're getting up there in age. They're getting a little bit more frail, and they're getting a little bit more forgetful. And uh, one day, uh, the 96-year-old uh, was running water for a bath, and uh, as she was putting her foot uh, into the tub, uh, she thought to herself, "And uh, am, now am I getting in the tub or am I getting out of the tub? So she just yelled out to her sisters, hey, I can't remember. Am I getting in the tub or am I getting out of the tub? And the 94-year-old sister says, hey, I'll be right up uh, to take a look. I'll help you out. And so as she's walking up the stairs, she pauses and she says, now am I going up the stairs or down the stairs? And the 92-year-old, uh, the youngest sister, is sitting at the dining room table downstairs. And she's like, oh, for Pete's sake. I hope I'm not like that uh, when I get to be older in years. Knock on wood. Hey, guys, I'll be up there to help you out. But first I need to go see who's at the door. That's funny. Are you guys awake this morning? Hey, you know, one of the interesting things about being a pastor in a congregation like this, uh, with so many people who are so faithful in your discipleship, in your walk with Jesus Christ, is uh, what's fascinating to me is oftentimes when I'm having conversations with many of you, you forget. You forget about so many of the fundamentals and the basics of the Christian faith. And I just get, you know, my role as the pastor is just to kind of remind you a little bit. And this is one of the reasons why I like the story of Lazarus so much in John 11. is because it's the fundamental story of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're ever wondering to yourself, what is it again like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? How does this discipleship journey go? Pick up the Gospel of John and read chapter 11 and the story of Lazarus because it is basic, it's foundational. And so what I'm going to preach on this morning as we look at this story again, I don't think anybody here today is going to go, oh, I never knew that before. But I think many of us today, I hope, are going to be like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. That's right. And, and, and I think many of you who uh, worship uh, here regularly, you know that I don't usually title my sermons, but uh, this morning I've entitled uh, my sermon, When You Forget, Be Reminded. When You Forget, Be Reminded. And I know some of you even take uh, notes in the margins of your Bibles, so you might even want to write, uh, When You Forget, Be Reminded, in the margin of John 11. And so I'm going to give you seven reminders about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ this morning. All right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed a God who is good and faithful, 
Uh, you are indeed our good, good father. And so, God, as we read this familiar story again in John 11, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. John 11, verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to the Lord, Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. So the story starts out where um, Jesus is, is going. Uh, he's in the community of, in the area, in the region of Jerusalem, in the area of Bethany, which is really, really close uh, to Jerusalem. And Jesus had a very close relationship with Mary Martha, uh, sisters, and their brother Lazarus. And they all lived in this house together. And I think about these three who lived in this house together who were really, really good friends with Jesus. And I think about the times they shared together because they had such a close connection. And when I was reading this story this week, I got to thinking about the television show Seinfeld. Anybody else watch Seinfeld, uh, maybe, uh, or maybe Seinfeld reruns? Yeah, I, I love Seinfeld. And one of my favorite characters in the TV show is Kramer. And Cosmo Kramer, you never know when he's going to show up. He just walks into Jerry's apartment, opens the fridge, starts poking around, and what, whatever he's looking for is not there. He starts critiquing what's going on in Jerry's fridge. And I think about that and, and, and uh, that relationship that Kramer and Jerry, they have. It's what I call refrigerator rights. And I just want to ask, do you have anybody in your life that you've got refrigerator rights to? Somebody you can just go over to their house. You don't even have to knock at the door. You just walk in, maybe even go into the fridge and open up and just kind of poke around. Or maybe... Another question for you, is there anybody who's got refrigerator rights at your house? Somebody who just comes over to your house, they all of a sudden show up, you don't even know they're there. But they, you, you walk into the kitchen and they're looking in your fridge going, hey, you're out of milk. This is the kind of relationship Jesus had with Mary, with Martha, with Lazarus. They were very close. Jesus spent most of his time, he grew up about 100 miles north, up in the Galilee region. But when he came down to the Jerusalem area, he needed a place to stay. And so Bethany, this place of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, it was kind of like his second home, his home away from home. And so whenever he came, he would come and visit them, and they would spend time together. But on this day, things are not going so well because the story begins, Lazarus is sick. And the first thing I want to remind you this morning is that two things can be true at the same time. It says, Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. That on the one hand, Jesus loved his friends. But on the other hand, it's also true. Lazarus is sick. And they're in pain. They're hurting. They're struggling. 
And sometimes when I sit with you and, and you share with me what's going on in your lives, your pains, your struggles, your hurts, you forget that God still loves you. And over and over, as we read throughout Scripture, these tr two truths that can be held simultaneously, that God still loves you. And even though God loves you and he cares for you, you can still have pain and struggle in your life. Just because you're experiencing pain and struggle and hurt doesn't mean God's mad at you. This is how this very story begins. So you need to never forget that God still loves you even in the midst of your pain. And in the midst of the pain, I love their response. Mary and Martha, the, the journey of a disciple, the journey of a follower of Jesus. They immediately go, somebody go get Jesus. Because they know, they believe, they trust that when something bad happens, go get Jesus. So I want to ask you this morning, how's your prayer life? When things are bad in your life, do you try and fix it yourself? Do you go through the hurt, the pain, the struggle, all those things? And, and at some point in time, you're like, I'm at the end of the rope. I might as well just throw up a prayer. Is prayer your last response when you're hurting and struggling? Or are you like Mary and Martha? It's your first reaction. When you wake up in the morning, you wake up and even before your feet have hit the floor, have you, have you, have you begun your day praying to God, God, I don't know what's going to happen today. I don't know what struggles I'm going to face. I don't know what pain, what obstacles, what challenges, but I need you, God. Even before the day begins and my feet hit the floor. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that prayer becomes our first response, not our last resort. Verse 7, And he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago the Jews were tried, there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve days uh, hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daylight uh, will stumble, for they see the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Then he, uh, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples uh, thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us go that we may die with him. One of the things I really, as I look at this text and I think about as the story is unfolding, they're having this conversation about what, what, what they're supposed to do. And as Jesus comes and they have this conversation, they're like, Jesus, we got a problem. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. And the disciples are like, we don't get it. We're confused. And Jesus talks about walking in daylight and walking at night. And the disciples are still confused. And this goes back and forth, this conversation. And the disciples are still confused. And they're all looking at each other going, what in the world is Jesus talking about? 
And I think when I look at this text, I think to myself, you know, I have a lot of questions about Jesus. In fact, I was talking to someone yesterday at the wedding, um, and, and he said, you know, I've been away from church for a while. He said, I have so many questions about Jesus. Maybe sometime you and I could sit down and talk about Jesus. I said, sure, I'd be happy to sit down and talk with you about Jesus, but I got a lot of questions myself. But as I read this text and I think about over and over how, how confused the disciples are, that's what it means to be a Jesus follower, that we don't have all the answers, that sometimes we just live in these questions and we have misunderstandings and it's okay. So if you're walking with Jesus and you've got questions, if you're walking with Jesus and you're confused, if you're walking with Jesus and something goes over your head, you would make an awesome disciple. And don't forget, it was these knuckleheads, these guys who were so confused that actually Jesus put his trust in to turn the world upside down. And we should never forget that it's okay to have questions, to be confused, and to just wonder, what is this all about? Let us go that we may die with him. I love this. I mean, when we typically think of, of Thomas, right? His nickname is Doubting Thomas. I think Thomas gets a bad rap because all of us, if I were to say to you, who's Thomas in the Bible? You'd all say Doubting Thomas, right? But in this case, he was, let us go to Jerusalem and die with Jesus, Thomas. And they're like, no, you're Doubting Thomas. He's like, no, I believe. Let's go. If you've ever felt misunderstood as a follower of Jesus, so did Thomas, he's got a bad rap because on this day, he was very, very faithful. Early in the Gospel of John, we see how Thomas and the other disciples came and met Jesus. It was this invitation to come and see. And as they would go along through this journey, um, they would have such great faith like Thomas did on this day. But uh, after the resurrection, Thomas is like, I don't believe it. I've got some doubt. I need to see. I need to touch. You see all these kind of seasons and characteristics of Thomas and all the disciples. It's okay if you don't have everything figured out. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, and I can see her wagging her finger, my brother would not have died. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus shows up, his reaction of Martha, she comes out, she's given him the business. She's upset. She's angry because Martha is grieving. And in the midst, what we're going to see here as the story unfolds is how Jesus responds to people in their grief. Jesus is always gracious. He's always loving. He's always kind. Grief is complicated. And if you ever experience someone going through grief, it can be very confusing about their reaction to their loss, whatever the loss might be, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, 
the law, uh, financial loss, a, a, a broken relationship. These are all areas of grief. And as we go through life and we experience grief, we have these emotions, these things that come out. And we oftentimes think to ourselves, well, grief just must mean sadness. But in this moment, grief manifests itself in anger. Now, a couple decades ago, uh, there was a, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she came up with this idea, this theory of these five stages of grief. And she said, you know, grief is really, really complicated in how it manifests itself. And so there's these five stages. And the first stage of grief is just denial. When you lose someone, when something tragic happens to you, you immediately go to, oh, no, this didn't just happen. This did not just happen. You must have the wrong phone number. You must have the wrong details. This couldn't be happening. Our brains go into this, this shutdown mode of denial. Couldn't happen. Second stage of grief is anger. Are you kidding me? I am so mad that this happened in my life. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't her fault. What's wrong with that person? This is why doctors and nurses get yelled at a lot in hospital rooms. Several years ago, I was in a hospital room uh, with, with a family. 87-year-old man uh, in, the, uh, in the patient in the bed. And we knew it was end of life, and the family decided in that moment to turn off uh, the, the, the machines to keep him alive. So we knew it was going to happen. And when they turned off the machines and he took his last breath, a 20-something-year-old granddaughter, she looked at me, and she was so angry. She said, why did God allow this to happen? It's a stage of grief. It's natural. It's what we do. We deny when these things happen. We get angry when these things happen in our life. Another stage of grief is bargaining. God, please don't let this happen. Please, 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 please. I know he's sick, but if you make him well, I will do anything. I will, please, God. It's that bargaining stage that we go through. It's really a manifestation of grief. Fourth stage of grief is depression. I'm sad. I mean, it's, it's that place where we kind of traditionally think of as grief. But it's not just sadness. It's, it's despondency. It's despair. It's like, ah, she's gone. I don't know how I'm going to keep living. I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's that, that dark place that we talk about, that struggle, that hurt, that pain. And it just hurts so much. And, and we cry and we weep until we're just absolutely emotionally spent. It's that depression. And then the fifth stage of grief is acceptance. All right. I need to move on. I don't like it. It hurts, but I need to move on. This past week, I met with someone who's going through grief. And they shared with me, I need to move on. And I don't think that they've moved through their grief yet and come to the place of acceptance yet. But they knew that that's what they were aiming for and that's where they needed to go. But sometimes we just sit in that place of, of acceptance and sometimes it feels really good. And other times we just continue to struggle with it. You know, the Bible is filled with all these stages of grief. And it's one of the reasons why I love reading through the Psalms. 
because you can read one particular psalm and you can read about how the person is going through the, all these stages of grief. In one moment, the, the writer of the psalm is going, God, are you kidding me? I'm so mad at you. And in the next moment, in the same psalm, it's just like, my soul is downcast. God, I am hurting. I'm struggling. I have no more tears to cry. And it'll just kind of this, this wave of up and down. And then oftentimes the psalm ends with, but nevertheless, God, you are good. You are faithful. It's this idea of acceptance. So if you're ever going to look for a place where you just need to grieve, to emote, to, to let your feelings out with whatever is going on in your life, go to the psalms. Sometimes I, I don't have words for my prayer life. And I'm just like, God, I need some words from your word to, to share with you how I'm feeling. My go-to is always the Psalms. So if you're grieving today, go to the Psalms. Martha is grieving. And notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't defend what's going on. He just calmly listens and he handles it. Jesus is always gracious and gentle when people are hurting. Verse 22. She continues on, but now, but I know that even now, God, you will give whatever you ask. And he said to her, your brother will rise again. Mother Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. One of the things that I feel like I have to remind us over and over and over is that doctrine matters. Theology matters. How we understand Scripture defines our relationship with God. Or put another way, when we don't understand Scripture, when we don't understand the Bible, we cannot have a proper and right relationship with God. It's so important that we read through this. So when Jesus says, do you believe? They're having this conversation, and, and there's really kind of two ways of looking at this. When Jesus says, do you believe? Martha could have thought to herself, is Jesus talking about the resurrection of my brother? Is he going to raise my brother from the dead? Is he going to make me feel better in the here and now in the moment? Or is he up to something different? When Jesus says, do you believe? Is he saying, do you believe that he is the Messiah? And I love Martha's response. Because Jesus is talking about raising Lazarus. And her response is this. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Martha understands who Jesus is. And this is why we talk about this and we preach about this over and over and over. How we understand who Jesus is, it matters. Yesterday, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses were at my door, knocking on my door, trying to pass out literature. 
and they have a false understanding of who Jesus is. They don't believe that he's the son of God, the Messiah. And if we don't understand that Jesus is God incarnate, the son of of man, the son of God, it's so easy to get sucked into these false teachings and believe wrong things and have a false relationship with God. And we live in a world that is increasingly biblically illiterate, a world that picks and chooses scripture, a world that says, you know, I'm just going to find a few verses out of the Bible and I'm just going to hang on to those things and stick with that because I want to keep it simple. But folks, that's dangerous. It results in moral relativism. We can pick and choose any Bible verse that we want. We can make it our mantra. We can build a whole church around it. We can build a church body around it. It's heresy. And we can never stop digging into God's word. Genesis through Revelation. This is why last year so many of you took up the challenge to read through the entire Bible. Why last year so many of you said to me, this is the first time I've read through the entire Bible in my entire life. And I'm in my 70s. I'm in my 80s. I had no idea what was in there. You're like, this is really difficult stuff. This is really challenging me. I'm like, praise God, it should challenge you. Do you want to just go through your whole life believing little sound bites of what it means to follow Jesus? Or do you want to follow his whole word? I mean, this is the culture in which we live today. Do whatever you feel like doing. I mean, you know that June is national do whatever you feel like month, right? Go to parade, fly a flag. Just do whatever you want. Just don't bother me. It's so contrary to the gospel, to the Bible. Jesus never says, do whatever you feel like. In fact, he says the opposite. You need to die to yourself and follow me. And the reason I'm reminding you of this this morning is that your temptation and my temptation is to take our lives, our feelings, our emotions, our thoughts, and just wrap the Bible around us. And Jesus says, that's not how it works. I want you to take my word, my commandments, my law, my teachings, and wrap your life around it. Those are two very different things. And so I want to remind you this morning, Jesus has invited us to step into his word. Our theology matters. Our doctrine matters. And when we get it right, like Martha got it right, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, she draws great comfort from good theology. See, the thing is about doctrine and theology, we oftentimes think, well, that's just stuff that we believe. But what we learn here in the story is that good theology, good doctrine, is actually really, really practical in our daily lives. Because if you just do whatever you feel and live your life however you want, you're going to go through life like this, up and down, and you're going to go through a lot of lows. And you're going to feel separated from God, and you're going to feel angry with God, and you're not going to believe in God. But when we put our lives around Scripture, it gives us that peace, it gives us that assurance That's good news, I think. Our theology matters, folks. Martha tells us all about the theological importance this morning. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Verse 28. 
After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she went, got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Isn't it interesting? These two sisters, Mary and Martha, have a very different reaction in their grief. Isn't it interesting, those of you who have got kids or raised kids, how you can have two kids who are completely different than one another? It's like, what household were you raised in? How can you react so differently? That's Mary and Martha. Two completely different reactions. Martha's angry. She's mad. Lord, if you had been here, oh, I'm so mad at you. Mary shows up, doesn't say a word, drops to her knees, and she worships Jesus. And in deep grief, in deep sadness, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother Lazarus wouldn't have died. Almost identical words, but a different tone in terms of what's going on here. And for me, as I was reading this text this week, one of the things that I need to remind you all of regularly, and I'm going to remind you again this morning, the best prayers you can ever pray to God are the most honest prayers that you pray to God. The best prayers you can ever pray to God are the most honest prayers to God. Because God's not terribly interested in your prayers of Heavenly Father, thou art good and holy, in some kind of rote prayer that you read in a book sometime that sounds really pious and reverent, that it's not how you're feeling on that day. That's not how Mary and Martha respond. They are in their emotions. They are pouring out with Jesus exactly how they feel. And you should never feel badly about shaking your fist at God in anger. He can handle it. You should never feel badly about being so sad. Oh, God, I'm so sad. I feel like I don't have any faith in you. That's Mary. Be honest in your prayers. Your best prayers are always, always, always the most honest prayers. I think about the, the time in the Old Testament where King David, he was having a bad day. And in his quiet time, he's praying to God and he's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is upset. And God's like, that's good, David. Write that down. I think that needs to make it in the book because that's an honest prayer. You feel abandoned by God. And so a couple thousand years later, there's Jesus hanging on the cross, praying that same prayer that King David prayed because it was a prayer of the heart how he really felt separated from God my God my God why have you forsaken me God does not condemn Mary and Martha he says just give it to me I can take it 
Verse 34. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he who not open the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take the stone away, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. If you've got a King James Bible, it says, he stinketh. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you will see the glory of the Father? So they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but for this, what I've said for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The final thing that I need to remind you about this morning, so that's how I started, is that the story of Lazarus is an image, it's a picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's a picture, it's an image of our salvation, the journey that we walk on with Jesus. As I think about this image of, of Jesus calling out, Lazarus, come out. I have to remind you guys over and over, and I have to remind myself that Lazarus was dead. But notice, Jesus didn't walk into the tomb and say, hey, buddy, we're going to clean you up. Hey, buddy, I need you to put on some clean clothes. Hey, buddy, let's fix you up. He calls out, Lazarus, come out. Sometimes we think in our own lives, that we are following Jesus because of something that we've done. But what did Lazarus do in the story? Nothing. He was dead. That's what dead people do, is they stay dead. They only come alive when Jesus comes to us and calls us out. So the discipleship journey, the journey of following Jesus, it always begins with Jesus calling you and calling me out. Nothing that we've done, when he calls us out, we're still a mess. And notice, when he comes out, he's got on grave clothes. And Jesus says, take off the grave clothes. Now, most of us don't understand this idea of grave clothes. How it worked in Jesus' day is after a person died, they would wrap them in, in cloth and spices because the body was starting to decompose. And not just a little bit of cloth, but a lot of spices. And so maybe 75, 100 pounds of spices and cloth are wrapped. I mean, this guy is fully wrapped up in cloth and spices. 
many years ago, uh, I used to do youth ministry. Some of you know that. And one of the favorite, my favorite games that we would always do with the kids is, it was simply called the mummy wrap. And we'd get all the small group leaders uh, for junior high confirmation uh, or senior high ministry. And the, and the adults had to stand there. And then we'd get each small group a roll of toilet paper. And they would, uh, you know, wrap up as fast as they could uh, the, the small group leader. And they would, it was a great icebreaker. It was a great way for kids to get to know one another, to, you know, bind up their small group leader, have a good time. And once we get the, the, the small group leaders uh, all wrapped up, they had to just stand there. And we talked about what it means. This is how people were, were taken care of after they died. Lots and lots and lots of wrappings. And this is completely foreign to us, I know. But this is what's going on when Jesus says, hey, take off the grave clothes. Take off the grave clothes. One of the things I need to remind you guys and myself always in the journey of being a discipleship is to take off your grave clothes. When God rescues us, when Jesus comes to us and saves us, he has set us free. But oftentimes, we come out of the grave, we come out of the tomb, and we continue to live our lives like we're still dead. We continue to live our lives in the, in the sin and all the things that kept us down, that kept us back from following Jesus. We get so comfortable in our sin. We get so comfortable in our old ways. But Jesus says, take off the grave clothes. Stop sinning. Stop doing those things that were keeping you separated from God. What I think it's also interesting here is Jesus doesn't ask Lazarus to take off his grave clothes. He says to the people gathered that day, take off his grave clothes. One of the things about being a follower of Jesus, a Christian, a disciple, is that we need one another to take off our grave clothes. A few moments ago, I told you about when we would wrap up the, the small group leaders. And of course, we're like, well, yeah, they could just break it free. But you could not break free 75 pounds of uh, all sorts of uh, ointments and, and uh, smelly things and, and wrapping, cloth wrappings around you. Lazarus couldn't do it by himself. He couldn't take off his wrappings by himself. He needed other people to help him. So the final thing I want to say to you this morning, and we talk about this over and over and over, is you need the church. You need the body of Christ. You need one another to help you to take off your grave clothes. When you go to a life group, you're not just going and studying the Bible. You're taking off your grave clothes. You're inviting others around you to help you to take off your grave clothes. And you're helping to take off their grave clothes because we can't do it ourselves. This is what it means to be the church. We need each other, folks. I hear this all the time, and I know you do too. I just want to follow Jesus. I just don't like the church. The church is filled with hypocrites. The church is filled with sinful people. Yeah, it is, because you're here, right? And I'm here. You got a sinner preaching this morning. You've got a hypocrite preaching this morning. But this is why I need to be here. And this is why you need to be here. And this is why you need to be with a small group of Jesus followers 
to help you to take off your grave clothes. So as I think about the story of Lazarus this morning, you're probably going, yeah, I knew all that stuff. I, I, I just not live in it. I forgot. I forgot. And so I want to just encourage you, if you've got questions, if you're struggling, if you're still trying to figure it all out, you would make an awesome disciple of Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you have resurrected us uh, like you raised Lazarus from the dead. That God, we were dead in our sin and you cried out to each one of us, come out. You raised us from the dead. The death of our sins, the death of the ways, God, in which we have strayed from you and followed our own ways. And so, God, on this day again, we come out of the tomb. We come out as individuals. We invite you. We invite the church to do what only you can do and what only the church can do to take off the grave clothes. So God, equip us, empower us, and remind us that you are good and faithful wherever we are at in the, in the disciples' journey to following you. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.